0: Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Laura Stanley, and I'm bringing you the last episode for Spring Summer 2015. And I must admit, I'm a little sad about that. Uh, During the upcoming break, I'm going to miss coming to the studio here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and talking shop with the most talented and constructive people working in school food across the United States. But I am delighted about today's season finale episode. Uh, We're going to be discussing how children develop taste preferences and aversions, where these originate and how, and how a child's food environment in the first years of life impacts how they'll respond to the food environment at school. Um, our guest is Dr. Julie Manella of the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia. Uh, Monell, which was founded in 1968, is the world's only independent nonprofit scientific institute dedicated to interdisciplinary research on the senses of taste and smell and how these senses relate to human health. And, and when I say interdisciplinary, I'm talking about a spectrum that ranges from molecular biology to behavioral science. Uh, Dr. Manella is one of some 60 scientists stationed at Monell. Uh, her Research program, as you're about to hear, focuses on the role of very early experience on palate development, how taste preferences shift as children enter adolescence, um, and much more. Um, Dr. Manella holds a doctorate in biopsychology from the University of Chicago, and I think I'd better leave it to her to explain what that is. Um, welcome, Julie. It's such a pleasure to have you on today.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So, first of all, what what is biopsychology? It's the study of the
2: biological basis of behavior.
1: Okay, and in your case, it's focusing on behavior with regard to food and taste. Yes. Okay.
2: Or or looking basically the behavior associated with um, what children like to eat, how they learn how to eat, Mm -hmm. um, a whole host of things. Really trying to because when you look at children, they basically eat what they like. Mm -hmm. So understanding that biology, I think, is important. Okay. So how many years have you been
1: studying what children do and don't like to eat?
2: Pardon? How
1: many years have you been studying what children do and don't like to eat?
2: Many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Probably for the last 25, 30 years, my research has been focusing really on the mother and child Mm -hmm. and looking at the sensory components of foods, what are the first ways in which we learn about foods. And I should say that it's not just... Most of my ideas came from research in other animals that Mm -hmm. I was trained in at the University of Chicago and then started asking these questions of the human mother and infant.
1: Right, so that's what I wanted to ask you. So so you've done animal research, but I'm also interested in learning, like, what are some of the methods you learn to use about development of taste, taste preferences in children?
2: Well... One of the, I I mean, that really is at the crux of the problem is how does one ask a nonverbal child, do you like this or don't you like that? Mm -hmm. So it's establishing methods. Uh, It's as important to determine mother's perception of these behaviors, but we've tried to, and we have developed some infant-led feeding paradigms where we could actually ask the baby, how much of this do you drink? We can analyze their facial reactivity during Mm -hmm. feeding and a whole host of other Behaviors and then do randomized controlled trials to look at how early experiences could modify how much of food an infant eats how
1: much right. they like a food. Right, right. I, I, I'm a little bit familiar with your use of children as t- test subjects from um, the presentation you gave at the Healthy Kids, Healthy Flavors Conference at the Culinary Institute of America this spring. That's that's where we met. And, and, and in that presentation, you shared these amazing images and video of babies and toddlers tasting new foods. And, and these... These images were, like, incredibly illustrative, these visceral visceral expressions that range from delight to uncertainty to flat-out revulsion. I mean, how much of your time as a researcher is involved in, you know, looking at live subjects
2: like this? Well, uh, that, that's what it all is. And then, you know, writing the manuscripts to get so that it's published and so that everyone knows about the findings. But right. it's... Uh, that's what I do is basic research in infants and children.
1: Right. So you spend a lot of time with babies eating babies.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> as do the, you know, now it's a lot of time the members of my lab use. It's a team. It's not just me. Right,
1: right, right. Well, and and the videos, um, which we can't see, of course, because this is radio, were not just really entertaining, but incredibly, um, what, educational. Um, so it was great that you could share those.
2: Um, you know, as and co- I, I would it, say mm-hmm. that I think every, when hopefully we'll talk about this one, and it's not just my research, it's a century-long legacy of basic experimental research and taste. Mm-hmm. And what one finds is that the baby is born, you know, being a sweet connoisseur. They prefer sweet, they don't like bitter. And this preference for sweet and salt uh, remain heightened throughout all childhood. And even we have evidence that children are more sensitive to bitter. But I would say that many of us have witnessed this liking of sweet in particular during every child's first birthday when they get that first taste of cake mm-hmm. it's not just a preferred taste by children but it also makes them feel good it's a it's, it blunts expressions of pain it's an analgesic for babies yes. and so one sees the pleasure uh, when that child first first gets uh their birthday cake, I would say you see that pleasure, too, when the baby's drinking mother's milk.
1: Right. So this preference for sweetness does serve and protect children in early
2: life. Can, can you explain how that works? Well, the, the baby is born with a very elegant biology to attract it to that which it needs. And to think of what we need, one has to think of our not-so-distant past, but our evolutionary past, in which the baby is born liking the predominant taste of what it needs to survive, which is mother's milk. And then ter- during periods of maximal growth, attracts that to energy rich foods, which were most likely carbohydrates in the form of fruits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what the issue is is that we now, and then it, this, the sensory system is also very elegant, and it, it, the baby is really avoids that which could be harmful which is bitter, Mm -hmm. which many poison tasted bitter. So you see that this sensory system is really amped up during childhood, attract the sweet, uh, which is energy, attract the salt, which is minerals, reject poison, which is bitter. But but the issue is today is that many children are living in environments in which there's a mismatch between this biology. Mm -hmm. Sweet and salt in the form of processed foods are abundant, Uh, And so those are the types of foods in which you see children over-consuming.
1: Right. What, what you said to us was that this preference for sweetness um, remains really elevated during periods of growth. And, and, and you talked about that basically presenting a vulnerability yeah. to the current food environment.
2: Um, it's many a, talk mm-hmm. about how children are vulnerable to advertising of these foods, and I agree with that. But when one understands the basic biology in, in relationship to taste, mm-hmm. one realizes that are, they are vulnerable in many more ways. They are drawn to things that taste sweet and salt. These not just because their preferred taste. Sweet and salt can also mask the bad taste. Mm-hmm. Plus, sweet and salt make the child feel better. So it's uh, it's much more complicated area. But I I think when they are really vulnerable to processed foods.
1: Right. I mean, you you said that um, before their second birthday, many children have um, the same kind of eating habits that. Plague adults, and you talked about like how much more, on average, babies were getting of recommended levels of sugar and sodium. Okay, why is that happening?
2: Oh, and and that goes through childhood. When you look Mm -hmm. at the incidence of uh, percentage of added sugars in the child's diet, you don't have to learn to like sweeter salt. You have to learn to like varying textures of foods. You have to learn to like. fruits and vegetables, when you look at a lot of these commercial foods that really, you know, it, it step back, it, it, they taste the same all the time. They have very high levels of sweet or salt, which are attractive to children. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're predictable. They don't vary. Uh, during childhood, you know, we learn what to eat, how to eat, what a food should taste like. Uh, it, and many children aren't getting the experiences to learn to like these foods. So they're deprived because of the vulnerability. A recent study by the CDC infrequent fruit and vegetable intake during infancy is predicting infrequent fruit and vegetable intake at six years of age when these children are entering or are in schools. And so one sees that these early feeding habits, which we can't feed children by themselves. Mm -hmm. This is is a... Children are eating what adults are eating. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... They need the experiences to learn to like these healthy foods um, so that it gets them off to a good start. It's a lot easier to feed these fruits and vegetables if they've at school, if they've been eating these fruits and vegetables in the home from an early age,
1: right? I mean, what you you know, you are today, and at the CIA, also, you were you know, you're talking to mainly school food professionals who are really intent on helping their students learn to enjoy fruits and vegetables, whole grains, low sodium entrees. Um, your your message in your presentation at CIA was was kind of daunting. What you said was, you know, they're coming to you um, already, kind of deprived and with a certain kind of what. Stubborn, locked-in preferences that that are going to be very hard for, you know, school food menu planners to overcome.
2: And I, and I think that was really the message that was re- was resonated by many of the chefs and also many of the school uh, nutrition uh, workers is that it's it can't be school alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be sure that. Uh, that feeding these healthy foods are important. Don't get me wrong, it's important. And we have seen uh, increases, especially in fruits. Vegetables are always going to be harder uh, as a consequence of the changes in the school nutrition program. But I think everyone agrees it it, it can't just be school. It starts in the home, and I think that for as much as we're focusing on the school nutrition program, we have to focus on what are the barriers to this healthy Eating for families, whether it's cost, whether it's availability, whether it's social support. But the likelihood of her child to eat these healthy foods uh, is maximized when these are the foods of the family and and of their people. Right, right. So let's
1: talk about what happens at home
2: um, or in
1: daycare when we offer a baby or a toddler something they don't immediately go for, it. you know, say it's green squash as opposed to bananas, or, you know, even more challenging, it's broccoli. I mean, chances are it's not going to go well the first time. Um, you know, y- you observe this. What, what, what happens? Some babies do a little better than others, um, and, and why is that?
2: Yeah, so there's, uh, of all the taste qualities, bitter is the most diverse. So there's mm-hmm. going to probably be a wider range of acceptance for bitter-tasting vegetables. And we have a biology that attracts us to sweet and salt, rejects bitter. But our biology is not our destiny. And Mm -hmm. we can learn about foods, witness cultures around the world. Uh, And the first way we learn is through the diet of our moms Mm -hmm. when she's pregnant and then during breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Because just like other mammals, the flavors of the mother's diet uh, get into amniotic fluid and mother's milk. The baby can detect these flavors and through experimental research, not just in humans, with a wide variety of animals, uh, young are more accepting of these foods if their mothers ate it and then they experience the flavors. Uh, it's a really beautiful system. Uh, it's giving the baby information about what foods mom is, has available, mm-hmm. what foods she likes, and the bottom line is once the baby's eating table food, mom feeds children, uh, what what the family is eating. And then uh, we've also learned that there's, you know, these senses remain open to learning. And so even during early childhood, there seems to be some sensitive period during the first few years of life where you really, before the age of three or four is when these experience seem to have more long-lasting effects, mm-hmm. is that children learn through repeated exposure. So... Give them eight days of tasting of food, they're more accepting at the end of those eight days. Right. So, give so, them a variety mm-hmm. of foods, for example, a variety of fruits. They're not only accepting of the fruits that they experience, but also a novel fruit. The same with vegetables. The one thing for what's important, and th- these are the same principles that al- also uh, work, when the child is older. And I think that's what you're witnessing in the school nutrition program, Mm -hmm. is that after repeated exposure, especially to fruits, you see that children are starting to eat more fruits. It's all really uh, building on the familiar, repeating the experiences for these senses to learn to like the flavor of the, and, and by flavor, it's not just the taste, but the texture and the complexity of the food. So these are all operating early in life, uh, and it's uh, some of the first ways in which we Learn about food. So, so there
1: is hope. Um, what you were talking about earlier, Julie, about um, taste, you know, how children begin tasting in utero and when they're breastfeeding, that's something you call the flavor bridge. Um, and, and I really want to talk about that. Uh, we're going to go to station break now, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about that when we come back. Um, this is Inside School Food, and you're listening to a conversation with Dr. Julie Monella of the Monell Chemical Census Center
0: this is chris howell from cane vineyard and winery calling in from spring mountain above the napa valley thank you for listening to this show in our industrial world of highly processed food and wine we support the values of heritage radio network all of us at Cain encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to cane 5com
1: Welcome back to Inside School Food. Our guest today, Dr. Julie Minello, works on the cutting edge of research into how children develop taste preferences and aversions. Um, And as as she just mentioned, it mostly occurs very early. Um, So, Julie, this notion of the flavor bridge occurring in utero, at at what point does the fetus actually begin to taste what its mom is eating? And how do we know?
2: Um, The research has shown that when you look at the machinery, the taste, and and it's also odors Mm -hmm. that are perceived retinasally, it's pretty well developed by the second trimester of pregnancy. That's not to say that the baby is a miniature adult or the fetus is a miniature adult, but these sensory systems are capable of transmitting information to the central nervous system during pregnancy. How do we know? We've done randomized control trials. Uh, there's been a number of studies where you can manipulate the diet of the mother. Um, during. First of all, you, you first established that amniotic fluid, uh, these flavors get into amniotic fluid as a result of the maternal diet. Mm-hmm. That's been pretty well established, as well as the transfer of these dietary volatiles to her milk. It was a big research area of study in the 70s when uh, a lot focused on dairy cows, it's not just what the cow ate or drank, it's also the air that uh, she breathed. Mm-hmm. But we've shown in humans that a wide variety of, of the flavors of the mother's diet, whether it's garlic, whether it's vanilla, whether it's carrot, a lot of the spices get into amniotic fluid and mother's milk. And when you do randomized controlled trials, you'll see that if the baby had experienced that flavor and during pregnancy or during lactation, they were more accepting of that food. That is, they ate more. They made less negative faces of distaste while they were eating that food at weaning.
1: Just fascinating. Uh, but at the same time, there are, regardless of what mom eats, there are children who have a heightened sensitivity to bitterness. You call it—I'm probably mispronouncing it—a bitter allele. What can you tell us? What that is? Well, of
2: all the uh, tastes, bitter is the most diverse, uh, and uh, there are, you know. There are many genes that are coding for these bitter taste receptors what we've focused on one of those bitter taste receptors and what we've seen is that even if a child or an adult have the same genotype they have the same uh, number of alleles children will be more sensitive than adults for some bitters Mm -hmm. so that tells me that uh, and it doesn't change until mid-adolescent there's a lot of things changing during teenage years um, Children start preferring lower levels of sweet. They start shifting in their salt preference. They start being less sensitive to bitter. You know, one often remarks about how the the diets of of uh, their teenagers change when they enter school, and think that it may be due to social control of eating, which probably is a a big contributing factor. But it may also be that their sensory systems are changing too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I would say that. W- the baby's born liking sweet and salt uh, the ba- uh, liking sweet salt kicks in a little bit later but the child really likes salt as well and is sensitive to bitter this is but all these senses can learn and that learning is occurring even before your first taste of solid food because you're learning about the flavor of the diet of the mother and why I call it a flavor bridge is that it's really uh, the The flavors that are experienced, for example, in mother's milk are really bridging the experiences the fetus had in utero to the Mm -hmm. foods of the table. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, it's like all learning. It's building on the familiar and you're increasing the complexity of the learning. Now, we're all different. We've we've got a varied uh, sensory system, but the bottom line is you need the experiences to learn to like the foods. Right, right,
1: and just to return to these, you know, the, the notion of some children just having a heightened sensitivity to bitter. You talked about judicious use of of um, flavor elements to mask bitter to get children who are very sensitive to bitter slowly acclimated. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, for as much, children like sweet and salt um, by themselves, but they also are important because they mask or block the unpleasant taste in food, Mm -hmm. for example, the bitter. And so whether the child's sensitive to bitter or not, you can see that that it really reduces the bitterness of a number of food-grade bitters, increasing its acceptance. It's basically the rule of cuisine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Salt and sweet are used in all cultures around the world. uh, By reducing the unpleasant notes, it brings out the more pleasant So, you know, a little sugar and a little salt can go a long way in increasing the palatability of bitter-tasting foods, for example. Vegetables, right. Uh, if, during the initial stages, and there's some research to support that as well.
1: Well, and so that that would argue for, you know, in, in schools' food service, a judicious use of a little bit of salt or a honey mustard dressing on things like broccoli. Um, some of the regulations around uh, sodium in particular can make that um, problematic, however.
2: Yeah, I, I, I feel sorry for... <laughs> Those that are preparing those foods and can't mm-hmm. use a little salt are sweet, and right. you know even when you look at the i o m report for the reduction of of uh, sodium, it's even stated in there that because so little of the salt um, is used from the uh, table shaker mm-hmm. is they uh, that you know a little salt can go a long way in increasing the palatability of these foods.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I'd like to hold on to that thought for future episodes. Really, it's easier for a child to eat broccoli if it has a little salt on it. It's just kind of common
2: sense. I, uh, yeah, you can, uh, I mean, I think everyone is witness, can taste it themselves as well.
1: Mhm. Um So, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this changeover that um, occurs in taste preferences and adolescents. How can you know people planning menus for teenagers at school exploit that natural change to further push kids towards uh, you know healthy eating patterns?
2: Well, it's uh, I it's a you know when I think of what those in the school lunch program I are, are doing. It's a monumental task because you've got so much variability. Um, but what I would say is that what, what you notice, especially sometimes in the older age child, is a motivation for healthy eating.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, whether that motivation is, is also due in part to this changing sensory system um, is, is one that really hasn't been explored. It is tough because when you what you look at is you you see that the, when children are eating more of these processed foods, which are really kind of hijacking these sensory systems, is that it's not cause and effect, but you really see lower intakes of healthy foods like fruit and vegetables. Right. And so um, it's hard to know how to begin when you have so much competition coming from outside of the school or outside of the home where these these foods are cheap, they're inexpensive, they're abundant, uh, and I think you're really targeting on something. How do, does one motivate that older child, which I think is a really important age group because they're the future parents of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. How does one motivate them to try to shift these patterns? Mm-hmm. You know, they aren't like the young child who eats only what they like. They can now be talked to, unlike the two-year-old, with explaining what nutrition is, what works, what motivates someone to want to change and eat uh, healthy foods, I think is a really important uh, area of future research. Right. And it is really
1: heartening to know that there there is this natural change that we can exploit if we are aware that it's happening. Um, you said there was another compelling statement you made at the conference, and, and that was that childhood diet um, is, a, is a significant determinant of adult diet after 21 years of age. I wasn't sure sure what you meant. I mean, does this mean that people working in school food and, and of course, parents shouldn't despair of their teenagers who, like, won't lay off the Twizzlers and the salty snacks or or what?
2: No, I, 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 what I was referring to was the um, body of research that shows what you eat early in life Mm -hmm. uh, tracks into later life. And so even from an early age, whether you're I'm talking about the CDC findings, or you're talking about uh, of you know whether children are eating the food or not eating the food. You see that it's tracking um, later in life. So, what some of the things that we see is dietary patterns that are beginning to be identified in childhood really determine the quality of the diet. Uh, the most apparent changes during early childhood: new foods are more likely to accept it before the age of three compared mm-hmm. to later. Mm-hmm. Um, these dietary, you know, the the best predictor of uh, how much healthy foods in this term, the studies were like, fruits and vegetables young children are eating is whether they liked how the food tastes, how long they were breastfed, whether their families are eating these foods, and mm-hmm. whether they have been eating these foods from two or three years of age. Um, that's why many think that there's a sensitive period. That's not to say that you can't learn to like new foods mm-hmm. but it's just a lot easier if you're eating these foods from an early age. Right. You know, you can I love the saying you can teach an old dog new tricks. It's just a lot easier easier to teach a young one. And I think the same is for diet habits.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it, it's not a completely hopeless message, though. So much of what we talk about at Inside School Food is strategies like school gardens and um, regular taste tests and um, consistent you know, reintroduction of unfamiliar new foods to get kids accustomed to them. And, you know, our, our guests who appear on the show say it, it does work. Um, I guess what you're saying is just a lot harder um, if children and haven't started in, in early life, but um, but you
2: can. I mean, it, you can. They learn the same ways. They learn through this repeated exposure. Mm-hmm. And even research that has been done on older age children, like five to seven, you can see that they're, um, they they can learn through repeated exposure. What's really interesting is that they are quicker to try a new food, and they'll have a greater liking the food one when it's modeled by an important other, such as a parent, mm-hmm. uh, you can, that's why I think, and I, I, I think I'm not alone, and you can see that we can't just focus on the school environment itself. We also have to have a much, much more broader, broader context and look at the home. You know, uh, the more fruits and vegetables in the home, the more these foods the child's eating in school. And so, you know, you you're looking at modeling, you're looking at context and you're looking at the consistency of the message, but to be sure even older age children are learning through this repeated exposure. Sure. Sure. And 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 I would say the other thing is, you know, their social modeling is important and what's also important is that the food is fed in a very positive context. You can't force feed. Um, that just isn't gonna work and it'll probably make these foods even less palatable.
1: Right. Right. Well, that that certainly um, is an endorsement of the Smarter Lunchroom strategies right. that are very much um, encouraging as opposed to prescriptive. Um, um, Julie, I, I'm, I'm so grateful you could join us today um, to talk about this. We have really never spoken about um, you know the environment before kids start school um, on Inside School Foods. So this is a, a great addition to um, our many conversations. Um, you have been uh, listening to Inside School Foods the season finales for spring-summer 2015 with Dr. Julie Manella of the Monell Chemical Census Center. Julie, again, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure.
1: Um, I've posted a link to the Monell um, Center's website on today's show page on insideschoolfood.com. Take a look. It is guaranteed to fascinate Uh, Inside School Food is a production of the Heritage Radio Network. If the show has served you well, here are a few things you can do. You can become a a member of this remarkable listener-supported station, as I have. Just visit heritageradionetwork.org and click on Donate. If you're not ready to make that step, you can still help us by simply liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter or by signing up for our mailing list. This is how uh, we and our business supporters know who is listening, and it really matters to us, so please take a minute to do it. Um, I'm Laura Stanley, and I look forward to welcoming you back with a brand-new season on Monday, September 14th